So if you would, find your Bibles and find 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Hopefully it will not take long to find. This is the third week in our study of 1 Peter. As we go through the summer together, we're going to go all the way through this letter. And so far, I think it has been helpful. It's been good for us to learn uh, what Peter is, uh, how he wants to encourage the chosen exiles, the elect exiles that are dispersed throughout what we now know as modern-day Turkey. Um, Today in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we're going to come to what I think is one of the most rich passages in the Bible for understanding both the gift and blessing of being counted as part of the body of Christ. So you and I, as Christians, when we become followers of Jesus, the Bible says we become members of his body. And that's not just a spiritual reality that we are in Christ, but it's also a very physical, tangible, practical reality that we would uh, align ourselves with a visible body of Christ known as the local church. And so we're going to get into that this morning. Remember, Peter is writing to Christians. He's writing to elect exiles who are scattered throughout modern-day Turkey, and he's calling them to stand firm in the midst of persecution that's erupting all around them. Hardship from both pagan Gentiles who reject any kind of monotheistic religion and from Jews who have missed the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. So from both sides, Christians are facing persecution. Today we're going to see Peter grounding the identity of the exiles in things that God has done, which leads them into some powerful purposes for their time in exile as they await the coming of the Lord. So you and I, as we read this passage together, we recognize we too are exiles. This place is not our home. We too have a glorious identity in Christ, more than family heritage, more than um, uh, status, more than hobbies, more than skill. Uh, Our identity is in Christ. And we too have been given a purpose in the midst of our exile. So we're going to learn about those purposes together as we read our passage this morning. So you should be in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Let's read together. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen And precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray before we go any further. Oh God in heaven, you are so kind to gather us together as the people of God, to read from the word of God and be transformed by the spirit of God. So God, I pray that you might open our eyes to behold your truth and help us to believe it, to, to grasp it with our minds, to, to let it seep down deep into our hearts and let it show forth in our actions and our deeds. Lord, we love you. We pray that you might give us insight this morning. Help me to teach with clarity and with power. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a couple of things in this passage that I want us to, to look at as it relates to both our identity as exiles, our identity as Christians, and our purpose. So our identity in Christ is going to lead to our purposes in the world, all right? Our purpose flows out from our identity. So first, if you're taking notes this morning, number one, we are saved to grow. We're saved to grow. Peter calls you and me as believers to put away sinful practices and sinful heart attitudes. He says in verse three, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, then you will do the things in verses one and two. If you've tasted the salvation of the Lord, for instance, then sin must not be tolerated in your life. So, so students, we've been sanctified. In other words, we've been set apart from the rest of the world when we come to Christ. But God did not save us. He didn't set us apart for us to sit still. He didn't set you apart from the rest of the world so that you might just maintain where you are. No, he's called you and me and all Christians to grow. And he gives us, in verse 1, five big words that constitute sinful attitudes and sinful actions. So let's just think about these because they're important. And, and if we're not careful, we'll skip right over them and say, oh, I know what that means. So malice. He says, put away all malice. I think this word, malice, is kind of the root and plant. And all the other words, the other four words, will be the fruit from malice. Malice is a heart attitude that seeks at its root to harm other people. Now, how that works out will be very different. What that might look like will differ based on who you are and what the circumstance is. But malice in your heart is this attitude that seeks to bring harm to other people. And some of the fruits of malice include deceit lying to others for personal protection or personal gain. If I want to be seen as better than I am, or if I want other people to not know things about me that I don't want them to know, then I will deceive them. I will lie to them. Hypocrisy. This is not just telling lies, but living a lie. We know hypocrisy is like being two-faced. You're one way to one person and another way to another person. Envy is discontentment and comparing ourselves to others. So when I see someone who has something that I want, I envy them because I'm discontent with what I have. 
And it leads me to want to take that which is not mine. And then finally, slander is speaking wickedly and falsely of others in order to harm them. Students, all of us have all of these things in our heart because all of us still have sinful flesh that wars against us. And Peter is calling all of us to attack not just the fruits, not just slander and envy and hypocrisy and deceit, but to attack the root, this malice in my heart that, does, that doesn't want the good of someone else, but wants to harm them. So let's be honest with ourselves. Do you have malice in your heart? Do you have malice in your heart towards someone? Do you have malice in your heart towards a certain kind of people? Do you have malice in your heart towards a certain group of people? The difficult response to that is Jesus calls us not just to love our neighbors, but to love our enemies. There is no one in the world that you should have malice in your heart towards. As Christians, we are to love other people. We learned that last week, to love one another with a sincere brotherly love. Instead, no, not malice, but as exiles, we're called to long for pure spiritual milk, to grow in salvation, to grow in holiness, to grow in love for one another. That's what Peter says in verse 2. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now let me tell you, this is a metaphor that should not be lost on any of you, but is definitely not lost on me right now. If you've ever been around a newborn baby, and he or she is hungry, they will let you know. Uh, there is not a question as to whether or not they want milk or not. It is an all-consuming passion in their life. They want nothing else. They think of nothing else in that moment. All they want is food. They need food, and they don't know how to tell you other than to just break down, right? And in the same way, Peter wants us, like newborn infants, to long for something, to, to desire something more than anything else. We want the spiritual milk that, that causes us to grow up into salvation. This isn't something about being immature. So don't think about Paul saying, I give milk to some and meat to others. No, think of this as this is the nourishment that is required for you and I to grow in spiritual maturity. More than anything, students, do we desire the truth. We've been saved by Christ, but we've been saved by him in order that we may grow up in salvation. So if you've tasted the joy of salvation through your faith in Jesus, if you have placed your trust and faith in him, your call, your purpose is now to put away malice in your heart and long for truth so that you might grow more and more into the image of Christ. This is a purpose that you can cling on to no matter who you are, where you're at, what job you take, what family you're a part of, where you live, if you're a Christian, this can be something that you live for, that you grow up into salvation. That's number one. Number two, not only are you saved to grow, we are united to praise. Number two, we are united to praise. Look at verse four. It says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're like stones, Peter says, that God is putting together to create a spiritual house. Jesus 
is the true living stone. He's what we'll see in just a moment, the cornerstone of this spiritual house. He's the foundational stone of this spiritual house. But because you and I are in Christ, because you and I are united to him by faith, we now are living stones. We now are being put together to become that spiritual house. One quick aside as we read this text, just so we don't skip over it. It says here in this text that in the sight of God, Jesus is both chosen and precious, but in the sight of men, Jesus is rejected. We'll get to this a little bit more in the next point, but we need to recognize that there are really only two ways to approach Jesus. You either treasure him as precious or you reject him. You either see him as supreme or you see him as not important at all. If Jesus is precious in the sight of God, if he's like a a treasured jewel, then what should that say about your affections and my affections for Jesus? He should be our treasure. And students, let's, let's just confess together, oftentimes he's not. I know in my own life, oftentimes Jesus is not my supreme treasure. I want other things more than Jesus. And part of the Christian life is, is taking, almost taking our own heads in our hands by the power of the Spirit and moving our eyes away from the things of this world and putting our eyes back on Christ as our ultimate treasure. So if you find yourself not treasuring Christ, if you find yourself not wholly devoted to him every second of every day, it's not that you're a broken Christian. Well, it is, but it's because we're all broken Christians. We're all still warring against ourselves because of sin. But why are we built up into the spiritual house? Why is it that we're living stones according to Peter? It's so that we might offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we are united, we're built up together as a spiritual house so that we might praise him, so that we might offer sacrifices acceptable to him. And these sacrifices are not spiritual in the sense that they're just non-physical, that they're just kind of in our hearts. No, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, our whole lives should be offered up as a living sacrifice to God. Now our whole life as the body of Christ is given over to God in praise. So here's what that means. If you worship God only by yourself, then you're missing a key component of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. If if your worship, if your praise, if your devotion to the Lord is isolated and not found in the community of God, and not found in the family of faith, not found in the local church and in the rhythms of this spiritual house that God has built up, there's a a big problem. We know, I'm sure all of us know friends who call themselves Christians, who call themselves followers of Jesus, but have no desire to be part of a local church, no investment in the life of a local body. And I'm not saying they're not Christians, but I am saying there's a real problem with that because Peter seems to think that the way in which we offer spiritual sacrifices to God is together, that that's the default way we worship the Lord. So what this means is that when you become a Christian, when you place your faith in Jesus, it is right and natural to find other living stones to join with and be built up by God. It's not right and not natural to be a living stone by yourself. You need each other. I need you and you need me for accountability, for encouragement, for training, for prayer, 
Also notice that Jesus, the first living stone, was rejected by men, but chosen by God. Students, praising God as a living stone, praising God as a part of the body of Christ, offering your whole life as a living sacrifice, may lead to rejection from the world. You will be seen as lesser, as different, as not important, as even hateful. Praising the Lord, giving your life as a sacrifice to him, will be seen by the world as something wrong and may lead to your, your, you being rejected by men. But rejection from the world should not be interpreted as rejection by God. If things are going bad for you in this life, that doesn't necessarily mean that God is rejecting you or God is judging you. In fact, if we're in Christ, we should remember that Christ was rejected, Christ suffered, Christ was given over to death, and he was perfect and beloved in the sight of God, precious to God. So if we're in Christ, then we can be sure that we are precious in his sight as well. So we're saved to grow. And we're united to praise. These are two big things in the first five verses. We, the people of God, are growing in Christ together and worshiping Christ together as one body, one spiritual house that offers up praise. But the text continues. So number three, if you're taking notes, number three, we are honored to obey. We are honored to obey. We are honored by God. There was a a really great scene in the Southern Baptist Convention uh, two weeks ago that most of you don't really care about, and that's fine. But there were two guys who were running for president of the SBC, a guy named Ed Litton and a guy named Al Mohler. And both of them were uh, very similar in their uh, platforms. I voted for both of them, one one time, one at the runoff. I mean, both of these guys are godly men, faithful preachers of the word, um, invested in the life of the church, and the whole convention was a little contentious. It was a little tense. And Ed Litton won the presidency. He won the presidency. He became the president of the SBC. And uh, Al Mohler was not chosen. He was not elected as president. And that's probably, I mean, you have to imagine, that's a pretty crushing defeat. That, that's, that's a huge bummer. I mean, if you've ever run for anything or tried out for anything and didn't make it, just amplify that a, a lot, that's probably how Al Mohler was feeling. So the next day, uh, Al Mohler is also the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kentucky, and he's giving his report to the messengers, to the people who are at this conference, this convention, about how the seminary is going. And he's speaking, and at the end of his presentation, you take time for questions. The, the messengers can ask questions. So like, you could go up to a microphone and say, how are things going with this class? Or how are things going with this budget? Or how are things going with this professor or whatever? And Ed Litton, the president, the one who just won the election the day before, goes up to the microphone and in front of 17,000 people, honors Al Mohler. Just says, we wouldn't be the convention that we are. We wouldn't be where we are with so many missionaries on the field and so many faithful pastors and churches. And if it's not for the integrity and the faithfulness and the commitment of guys like Al Mohler and Honor should be given to those whom honor is due. And, and Al Mohler, we honor you. That was huge. It's huge to, to have that kind of encouragement seen by the rest of the messengers and seen by the watching world. That here are these two men running against each other for a very important position. And the winner going to the other person and saying, 
Brother, you would have made a fine president, and, and you are a gift to this convention. And Al Mohler naturally responded with, with encouragement and honor as well. Guys, we know how it makes us feel when we're shown honor, when we're encouraged, when we're blessed by other people who honor us. But we need to know, you need to recognize that if you're a Christian, God honors you. He honors you. In this middle section, we're going to see that there's only two ways to live. We can either believe in Christ and receive honor from the Lord, or we can reject Christ and be put to shame by God. This honoring from God leads us, though, to a specific purpose. Being honored by God for our faith in Christ leads us to obey his word. So here's maybe a point. It's not not a main point, but if you're taking notes, you may want to jot this down too. Obedience to Christ is the evidence that we have not rejected Christ. Obedience to Christ is evidence that we have not rejected Christ. So the inverse is also true, students. When we disobey the word of God, we are actively rejecting Jesus. We're saying Jesus' word is not for me, or Jesus' word is not what's best for me. And my hope and my prayer is that for my own life and for your life too, we would come to see that obedience to Jesus, obedience to God's word, is putting our faith into practice. It's actually living out what we say we believe. Look again at verse 6. Peter quotes Isaiah and says, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe. In other words, Peter is saying very plainly, God honors those who put their faith in Christ. We are blessed by God. But those who reject God, who reject Jesus, will be put to shame. Keep reading. For those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Jesus is now the foundation of the people of God. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel had the temple. And it was at this temple that priests would offer sacrifices to God on behalf of Israel. And that was the cornerstone of their faith. It was, I come to the priest, I offer my sacrifices, I pray that I might be made right with God. And it's only by his grace and and through these sacrifices. But the problem with the law, the problem with the old covenant, is that there's not enough animals for me to sacrifice to be made right with God. The foundation of the law was meant to show you and me and all who try to follow the law that we can't follow it. We can't keep the law. We can't be good enough for God. And so the good news for you and me is that the new covenant is not founded on the law. It's founded on Christ. And Christ is good enough. And Christ's work for us brings us into eternal life with God, brings us into relationship with God, brings us into being honored by God instead of being put to shame by God. But many reject him. Many reject Jesus. And look at the end of verse 8. We see why. They stumble, Peter says, because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So Peter says, those who reject Jesus 
reject Jesus because they disobey the word. It's like when Jesus tells the Pharisees, you don't know the scriptures, Pharisees, people whose whole life it was to know the word. You don't know the word because if you did know the word, you would know that the scriptures are speaking about me. So to reject Jesus is to disobey the word. To disobey the word is to reject Jesus. And Peter says that those who reject Jesus, those who disobey the word, were destined to do so. The rejection of Christ by sinners who disobey the word is not a surprise to God. It does not alter or change his sovereign plans. It was destined to happen. Now, this may rub some of us the wrong way. It may be hard for us to grapple with. God destined people to reject his son? How does that make sense? He destined them to disobey the word? Well, that's what it says. That's what it says right there in verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Listen to what Wayne Grudem says about this passage. He says, we must note that while Scripture is willing to affirm God's ultimate destining of wrongful actions, the blame for these actions is always given to the moral creatures, whether men or angels, who willingly choose to do wrong. The blame is never given to God. You can check out Job chapter 1, verse 22, or the end of Job if you want to try to argue against that. Therefore, if our understanding of the text, Grudem continues, if our understanding of the text ever leads us to begin to blame God rather than ourselves for evil, something scripture never does, or to engage in a vain discussion about how these things might put, be put together, which is unedifying, then we may be sure that our understanding or our application of the text is contrary to its original intent. So here's what Grudem is saying. God, this is the clear teaching of Scripture, God is not the author of sin. God is light, John tells us, and in him there is no darkness at all. He is not the author of sin. God is the creator of all things, and he is sovereign over all things. And all things that come to pass, come to pass by, by virtue of his sovereign decree. There is nothing in the universe that takes place without God's ordaining permission. So Charles Spurgeon once said it like this, there's not a, a moat of dust that moves in this room without the decree of God. R.C. Sproul, someone who we'll learn about at the end of the summer in our summer Bible studies, said something even, even more fantastic. He said, there's not a rogue atom in the universe. Everything is under God's sovereign hand. And yet, here's the mystery, and yet you and I are responsible for our actions, right? When I disobey, when I lie, when I show arrogance and pride, it's not that there's this, this angel behind me moving my arms or moving my mind or moving my mouth to do things that dishonor God. No, I don't need any help to do wrong, <laughs> I don't need any help to sin. I don't need any help to reject Christ because my heart is wicked. My heart is deceitful. My heart is sick. And in the same way, they who reject Christ do so because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Students, we have believed and we have been honored by God, which leads to obedience and as we continue in our text, we will see that our lives and words can be the means God uses 
to change the hearts of those who currently reject him. So God has seen fit to use your obedience and my obedience to be seen by those who reject Christ. And if God so desires, by his mercy and his grace, when they see our good works, they may have their eyes opened to see the gospel. We'll get to that here in just a bit. Number four. Number four. If you're taking notes, we are chosen to proclaim We are chosen to proclaim. We are chosen as the people of God. And these two verses, verses 9 and 10, are extremely important for three reasons. First, it's important because the things that we now are in Christ are those things that described Israel. So remember I said in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, Israel was founded on the law, was founded on this temple, the the sacrifices, the priesthood. But now in the new covenant, in Christ, we are now founded on Christ. He's our cornerstone. He's our foundation. The prophets and the apostles, their teachings are our foundation. And when we read verses 9 and 10, we'll read here in just a minute, all of these phrases that Peter calls Christians are the same thing in the old covenant that prophets would call Israel. So there's not a, don't think of it as Israel is being replaced by the church. It's a bad word. It's not like God was trying to do something with Israel, failed, threw them out, and now he's starting over with a new group. Now think of it more like scaffolding. Israel in the old covenant was like scaffolding, and we build scaffolding so that we might make a permanent structure, a permanent building. That scaffolding is vitally important. Without the scaffolding, we won't have the building. But the purpose of the scaffolding is to create a building. And the church is the building. Israel is the scaffolding, and all of those builders who are building up this spiritual house called the church are invited to come in and be a part of this church. So it's not a replacement of Israel, it's the fulfillment. Because we are, as Peter says, a people for his own possession. So look at verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This is coming straight out of Exodus chapter 19 that you may proclaim the excellencies of, who, of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you were chosen. You were brought in to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, so that you might proclaim his excellencies. So second, the things themselves that, that God calls us through Peter here in this text are vital for us to understand our identity in Christ. You and I are a chosen race. Now, what does that mean? It means that in Christ, Jews and Gentiles, humans from every ethnicity, every tribe, every nation are brought into the kingdom of God to be one new man. By the grace of God, those things that seek to divide us in the world pale in comparison to the blood of Jesus which unites us in the church. We are not just a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests who now go to the world to serve as both ambassadors, those who go out to foreign lands and uh, lobby on behalf of a king of another nation. That's our job as ambassadors, but also as priests to be mediators between sinners and a holy God to share with them how they might know our king. We're also a holy nation a people marked by godliness, not perfection, 
but set apart by God to shine as light in the darkness. And we are a people for his own possession. Students, you are his. Like God is over you. He delights in you. He's chosen you to be his son or his daughter. He is our Lord. Because once we were not a people, before you came to Christ, you were an alien. You were a foreigner. You were an orphan. You were disobedient. You were in darkness. You were blind. You were deaf. We had not received his mercy. But when the Spirit of God opened our eyes that we might behold the glory of Christ, we receive his mercy and now become his people. So it's who we are specifically. And then third, these verses are important because they give us another purpose. We are now this chosen race so that we might proclaim God's excellencies. So that we might proclaim to the world about the one who brought us from darkness into his light. God's excellencies, that word in your your translation may be another word, but God's excellencies, in other words, are his perfections, his attributes, his virtues, who he is. So that begs the question... Do you know God? Are you able to articulate who God is, what he's like, what his attributes are? Because yes, we do want to proclaim that this one, this God has moved us from darkness into his light. We do want to proclaim what he's done, but we also want to proclaim his excellencies. We want to proclaim who he is, what he's like what his attributes are, what his perfections are. Are you able to articulate what it means that God is righteous, what it means that God is holy, what it means that God is omniscient, what it means that God is wise, what it means that God is just? The scriptures give us so much rich information of who God is because the scriptures are God's revelation of himself. And so my hope is that you would hear this and say, I want to know not just what God has done for me, but who this God is. If all I knew about my wife was the things that she does for me, I wouldn't have a very good relationship with her. No, I want to know who she is. I want to know what makes her tick. I want to know what her her temperament is and what her likes are and her dislikes are. I want to know the person, not just the works. I don't have relationships with works. I have relationship with a person. Some of you, students, will be used by God to proclaim his person and his works to the world by becoming a missionary. And I pray that God would raise up from among us those who would say, I am giving my life for the sake of those who have never heard. Some of you will be used by God to proclaim his person and work by being a faithful witness at the ball field or in the classroom or at your job or in your school. But all of us, no matter our calling, no matter our vocation, have been given this purpose as Christians to proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness and into his light. This is the good news of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We always have something to talk about. All right, number five, we'll land the plane. Quickly, verses 11 through 12. We are living to glorify. We are living to glorify. Why is it that when you become a Christian, God doesn't just bring you into heaven? Like If he saved you from your sins, if he's saved you from hell, if he's brought you into relationship with himself, why doesn't he just end your life right then and bring you into relationship with him in heaven? Why do you stay here on earth? 
If the purpose of this life is to know God, well, then once you know him through faith in Christ, why do you still live? Well, as a conclusion and transition to the next part of Peter's letter, he wraps up here with a summary of what we've seen so far. That as sojourners and exiles called to put away sinful desires which wage war against our souls, we now share with our lives, with our words, with our thoughts and deeds what it means to know God. You've been given a purpose. You've been given life so that you might glorify God with it. If you find it hard to wrap your mind around this, just consider what he says in verse 11 and 12. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. These two verses really encapsulate all that we've learned so far. Just a couple of things to notice, and then we're done. First, look at verse 11. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Translation, that means that growing in godliness, that means that you becoming more like Jesus will feel like warfare. It will be hard. If you find it difficult to put your sin to death, if you find it hard to get rid of those sinful thoughts, if you find it really hard to actually walk in holiness and obedience and live righteously, you're not alone. Every Christian is walking into warfare when they put their sins to death and follow Jesus. It's another reason why we need each other. It's why we need brothers and sisters in arms who will walk together away from death and towards life. We're also called to live, Peter says, in an honorable way in the world because we've received God's honor so that the Gentiles, or unbelievers in this case, might see our good deeds and be led to glorify God when he comes. So again... I mean, feel both the, the, the rich treasure and the responsibility of this. God has seen fit to bring salvation to sinners through his church. Like God has not seen fit to just put a giant screen in the sky and say, hey, uh, it's me, God, made you, and I'm king of everything, uh, but you're a sinner, and you disobeyed me. And you committed treason, which deserves death. The wages of sin is death. So you should die, uh, but you're not dead because I love you. And I sent my son to die for you. And if you just believe in him and put your faith in him, you can have life everlasting with us in heaven. Sound good? Cool. Like I'll see you in a, I'll see you in a little bit. Like that's not what God has seen fit to do. What God has seen fit to do is save you and grow you up in faith and surround you with brothers and sisters, and, and involve you in the life of a church so that you might go out into the world that doesn't know him and proclaim the good news of the gospel. Like You have been called to be a part of this mission of God to extend his, his glory and extend his grace and extend his gospel to the ends of the earth. And it's through our holiness, through our faithfulness, that God will save sinners. It's not because of your faithfulness. This is key. It's not because of your holiness. So don't feel the responsibility that you save people. You don't. But it is through God's work in your life that God saves sinners. 
You are the vehicle that gets the gospel to where it needs to go. But God is the one who saves. But it brings us to that famous passage in Romans 10. How will they believe in him of whom they have never heard? Well, someone has to go to them. And you and I have been called by God to go to them. Students, our identity is in Christ. And so then our purpose is to live like Christ, put sin to death, walk in holiness, and point people to the Lord who made them. This is who we are, and this is what we do. Let's pray. God, I am grateful that you have brought me from death to life and from darkness to light that you've taken a traitor and made him a son. And Lord, now my life is yours. You have ransomed it by the blood of Christ. You have indwelled me by your Holy Spirit, sealed me as a promise of the inheritance that is kept in heaven for me because of your love, because of your mercy, because of your grace. At great cost to you, have you made relationship with me? And for that, Lord, I have unending praise. But I pray that that in my life and in the lives of those around me who follow you and have called you Savior and Lord, we would see that our worship is not just confined to singing songs about you once or twice a week, but that our lives should be offered as a living sacrifice, spiritual worship, as the body of Christ, as we go out into the world and make much of your name and and put sins to death and walk in holiness. God, sometimes we wonder, what is your will for my life? Lord, your word is clear. Your will for our lives is to put our sins to death, to walk in holiness, to share the gospel, to love one another to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to honor one another. So Lord, help us to be faithful to that which you've clearly said. Help us to grow up into that salvation. Make us more and more like Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen.